Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we have a lot to talk about today. It was a jam-packed week 14 of college baseball. A lot of championships won, a few tickets punched to the NCAA tournament, and just a lot, a lot happened over the a, what was a, a pretty wild uh, four-day weekend there. So we're, we're going to get to... Uh, to Arkansas winning the SEC, Texas winning the Big 12, uh, a crazy finish in the SWAC tournament, and the start of the coaching carousel really uh, kicked off with Texas A&M moving on from Rob Childress after 16 seasons. So we'll get into all of that and more. First, though, I got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, I don't have anything witty. I just have a whole, that was, that was just a fun weekend of college baseball. That was maybe the most fun that we've had all season long, at least since opening day and just like the celebration of college baseball being back. There were crazy finishes to regular season titles. There were tickets being punched, tickets that we knew were going to be punched in the MEAC and the SWAC with their tournaments. And then a couple tickets that coming into the weekend, I probably said on this podcast, like, ah, oh, well, Pac-12 won't wrap up this weekend. It's too tight or big t- Big Ten, like they're all playing each other. That's definitely coming down to the final weekend. Well, no, both of those wrapped up, and we have we have champions uh, there. And because neither of them are playing conference tournaments, they're Arizona and Nebraska are, are, are headed to the NCAA tournament now. So it was uh, there was just a lot going on all weekend long, and then you throw into it a major coaching change uh, announcement, and it was uh, it was kind of kind of a crazy final weekend of the regular season for most teams. A couple te- couple conferences still still going at it this this next weekend, but that was uh that was quite the finish, Joe. Indeed it was. Uh it also gave me one of the one of my favorite moments that I, I think I'll remember this forever. Like there are individual results from this past weekend that were fun that I will probably have to be reminded of I was going to say 5 years from now, but like a year from now. Um but I don't know that I will ever forget the Jackson state left fielder flying through the wall on that home run against Southern. Like there were so many, I want to, I want to watch that play another hundred times and dissect it like the Zapruder film, because like, it's it's such a, such a shocking thing to have happen because, and by the way, like, I don't know how that bullpen door latches shut, but I mean, that was the Southern bullpen. Like I'm guessing they just didn't latch that door back whenever the last guy came in. Like, so it's kind of funny how, uh, although Jackson State would not use the word funny, it's kind of, I'm not saying there was anything untoward happening. I just think the last guy came in and they just didn't bother locking the gate back. And so, like, if they do that, like, maybe that play plays out differently. But as it was, like, just such a shocking thing to have happen. And then the fact that, you know, he's confused by the moment. So I'm not, you know, I'm not doing this necessarily to make fun of the guy, but like, Jatavius Melton, the left fielder, like chases the ball into the bullpen after he gets up off the ground and then relays it in as if the play is, is still going, which I guess kind of was. Like Southern has players like out of the dugout, like all over the field. 
Like it, it, nobody crossed over into the playing field, like over the foul line, but it very much was like in college football where is very much in college football where like the team starts to rush the field too early and the officials are like frantically blowing their whistles, trying to get people off the field. Like that's kind of what it felt like just cause they, I think they were just in shock and they were celebrating and, you know, trying to plead the case that it was a home run, which it was, I could, I could watch that. I've, I have watched that video on Twitter since it happened yesterday, probably two dozen times. And I anticipate at least two dozen more in the coming days because it's just such a, a wild moment. Um, such a turn of events, like so shocking. Uh, there are parts of it that I find funny, like um, just a perfect, a, a perfect encapsulation of, for better or worse, kind of what can happen at some of these small conference conference tournaments. Yeah, definitely a lot to unpack there as Southern upset uh, Jackson State in the in the championship game. A wild ninth inning there. Um, just uh, it was as somebody I, I saw retweeted one of my tweets on, on that. Like, this is only May, guys. Like uh, in in the sense that like June June is still to come. The craziness of June is is still to come, and here we are having having this kind of of result and this kind of game happened in May. And I feel like there were games like that all across the country all weekend long. They just didn't necessarily have auto bids on the line. They had other things on the line. And we'll get back to, to the SWAC championship game here. But first, let's let's start, Joe, in the Big 12, where we talked a lot, a lot about this coming into the weekend, how TCU led Texas by one game uh, they, in the in the Big 12 standings, but Texas held the tiebreaker because they beat TCU in head-to-head in, in their series in Fort Worth a couple weeks ago. So to win the, the title, Texas was going to have to better TCU's result by one game this weekend. You know, TCU still held its own fate, but if they if they lost and, and Texas swept. Uh, the door was open. Well, they both started the weekend with a loss on Thursday, TCU at K-State and Texas at West Virginia. Uh, for Texas, that must have felt like a real missed opportunity not to have have taken advantage of, of that situation to, to tie the series right there, especially given that you had time at and on the mound. You're likely All-American. You're likely top 10, top 15 pick. But then they both came back. They win on on Friday. That sets up a, a the potential for a crazy finish on Sunday, and that is exactly what we got. TCU gets out to a you know starts fast in Manhattan, puts four runs on the board in the top of the first inning. K State wasted no time responding. They score four runs in the bottom of the first. They knocked out Johnny Ray in the first inning. The TCU starter. And then from there, the game kind of settled down a little bit. Um, TCU pushed ahead at one point and then added a couple more runs in the seventh and tacked on one final insurance run in the ninth. Chuck King was outstanding uh, in relief of Ray. He threw eight scoreless coming out of the bullpen. Uh, and then TCU turns to Halen Green, who might be an All-American closer this year. We'll see. Um, probably... Absolutely, though, the one of the best relievers in the Big 12. I was going to say the best, but Texas has some pretty good relievers, too. So uh, one of the best relievers in the Big 12, Halen Green, comes in trying to 
finish out, you know, what, what would be a big 12 championship for, for TCU holding a four run lead. He absolutely just did not have it though. And K state starts getting runners on, they score four to tie the game. Then they get a couple more on, uh, and they bring up Chris Chabayos to the plate. It's his senior day. And he takes a first pitch slider from Halen Green out deep to left field, walk off three run home run, opening the door for Texas with a win to win the Big 12 title. The Longhorns in Austin at the time are up 10 to one in the sixth inning on West Virginia. They're doing a whole lot of scoreboard watching down there, both the fans in the stands and the players. Um, David Pierce said he did not know what was happening in, in Manhattan until it happened. Um, but the, the players definitely seemed to, to have an idea of what was going on. And, you know, so when they get word that the TCU has lost, like Dish Falk goes crazy and then Texas goes out and finishes the job. They wind up walking off West Virginia 12 to two on a run rule in the eighth inning. And they are your big 12 champions, your number one seed in the big 12 tournament. And uh, just a, a crazy, crazy day of baseball in the big 12 there on Saturday. The upshot is Texas is locked in as a national seed. They might be locked into the number two national seed at this point. Uh, I think it would take a lot to dislodge them from that. I guess probably not totally locked in though. Uh, they are the number one seed, like I said, in the, the big 12 tournament and they win their second big 12 regular season title in three seasons under Dave um, in, in the last three seasons, all under David Pierce, uh, just a, a wild, wild finish to that one. Yeah. We, we had to know we were in for something this weekend when, TCU and Texas both lost the openers because it was just like, oh boy, here we go. Um, because I, I think there was a feeling, I had a feeling that both teams were just going to kind of hold serve and we would have to see what happened on the final day. And we did, but I don't think we anticipated it happening, happening in this particular way. It was just such a, I turned off the Kansas State TCU game late in that game to watch something else just because it felt like TCU had it in hand, like Charles King, like you mentioned, had really been cruising and it felt like, okay, they've settled things down. Like they've got this, they've got this handle. I can move on to, to something else. Um, so, so I did. And then it wasn't until I, I saw reactions on, on Twitter that, that I knew something had gone very, very wrong for TCU in that situation. It happened so quickly too. I mean, that was part of it. You know, they, they go to the ninth up eight to four and you just don't, you know, that the amount of time it takes to get that going was just not very, not very much. So it all happened very, very quickly. And just a surprising series loss, obviously it's, uh, you know, Kansas state also has that series win against Texas tech. And we talked about on the preview episode that they have this kind of thing in them. It's not a bad team. You know, it's a team that's not going to be a postseason team unless they win the tournament, but it's a, you know, a talented team in places and they have the ability to do this kind of thing. And, TCU now has one of the more has had one of the more just strange seasons uh, of anybody in the country this year where they, they get off to a slow start and then they pick it up. And for a long time, it looks like they're really the class of the big 12, but now they have a resume at the end where you look and they lost a series to Texas, lost a series to Texas tech. And now the, the backbreaker of course is that the series lost to Kansas state, but around that they swept Baylor. 
and swept Oklahoma and swept Oklahoma State and swept West Virginia. And the only loss they have in any game that's not to Kansas State, Texas, or Texas Tech is to Kansas. Um, a two-to-one game, <laughs> a Sunday two-to-one game. So um, just a, they took care of business so handily in all of the games against the teams that they were you know, better than, and then they, you know, lost the series against the teams that were in the same classes as they were. And then obviously in Kansas state, they got bit. So it's just a, a weird little resume. And now you come into the postseason and you wonder what TCU, like some of these problems that crop cropped up, I'm not worried about Halen green, but like you do start to worry about, you know, Johnny Ray has been kind of in and out of the rotation. They're clearly not as confident as they would like to be in him. You know, maybe Charles King gives you more confidence. I don't know what that is, but it, it, TCU is just a team that feels as it goes to Oklahoma city. Um, like it's like it's scrambling at this point. They've now lost three straight series home to Texas, home to Louisiana Monroe, and now at K state, they go to Oklahoma city. Probably I like emotionally spent after seeing uh, their, their title slip away. And, I mean, TCU fans are probably going to let me know that, and they already have, anytime I tweet about how Texas won the title, that, well, TCU shared it. And, like, yes, like, by the letter of the law, that's true. But, like, of all conferences to tell me about shared titles, like, it's the one with the one true champion slogan from a few years ago. Like, come on, guys. You played head-to-head. You lost. Like, (laughs) Texas is – we're we're going to refer to as Texas as the Big 12 champions here. I mean, that said, though, like TCU did a lot of things that they can feel good about. They have the resume they have. Like there's reason to get off the mat and think that you can do something in the postseason if you can just sort some of these things out. The problem is it's now like this is not a blip. This is going on three weeks. This is two serious losses that you shouldn't have taken. Like if you take a serious loss at home to Texas, like, okay. It happens like probably shouldn't have happened if you want to be like Omaha national title contender, like go out and and winning the big 12 and all the rest of that. But like, okay, it happens. Uh, But the last two weeks, there's, there's really no good explanation for, for what happened, except that, you know, TCU is a little short on the mound. Ultimately it looks like, and yeah, I mean, I I think Charles Kane probably moves into the rotation here in a, 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 you know, going forward for Johnny Ray, um, he Johnny Ray b- bounced in and out a little bit. Like the, the problem is for TCU to be the best version of itself, it really needs Johnny Ray to to be able to bounce back. And you know, right now, I don't I don't know. It's going to be hard. And you know, to to win a regional, they're going to be at home. Like I've said, they don't lose home regionals or super regionals under Jim Schlossenagel. That's only happened once. In the last, like, however many years he's been the head coach, like 12 years at this point, more than that. And, you know, so you can feel okay from that standpoint, but, you know, it's uh, – they, they got to get something corrected here in a hurry because they're, they're going to – I, they just don't have no momentum right now going into the NCAA tournament and, and that they've got to find a way to to work their way back from that and work their way to to where they were in April as opposed to to where they are now. And it's uh it's gonna be a challenge for them. Uh, on the flip side, Joe, this Texas team, you know, we've talked about Arkansas and Vanderbilt and then anybody else. Like, well, 
what if it's Texas? Like, is Texas, I didn't think about this when I was writing last night. I probably should have. Uh, I wrote about Texas extensively and off the bat, uh, which you can read over at baseballamerica.com. But Joe, is Texas now like the, how, w- would you would you take Texas over Vanderbilt, you know, to, to go head to head against Arkansas? Hmm. It's a great question. That's pretty close. I mean, while you think this through, let me yeah. let me just illustrate this a little bit for the, the listeners who may not be as familiar with, with the horns. You know, so you've Ty Madden, who is the ace of the rotation, a top 10 to 15 pick, probably an All-American. Tristan Stevens, experienced number two starter, like fourth or fifth year senior. I, I genuinely am not sure. Um, but he's uh he, he's he's been very, very good all season long. And now Pete Hansen has come back into the rotation over the last few weeks and been excellent, been much more like the guy that he was expected to be coming into the season. So you now have what might be the best three-man rotation, not the best like, well, one, two, and then their three is fine. It might be the best one through three in the country. Uh, They have a bullpen trio of Cole Quintanilla, Aaron Nixon, and Tanner Witt, who have been outstanding. And you have a lineup that has probably more power than your typical Texas lineup, although the home run rate across the country is up. So a little hard to tell, but Ivan Melendez hits, uh, hits for power. Cam Williams has been really good. Uh, Zach Zubia, we know what kind of power hitter he can be. Uh, Mitchell Daly has been really good as a freshman at second base coming in and uh, just hitting the ball around. He's not a power hitter, but, but he's leading the team in, in batting right now. Mike Antico has come on really well. The batting average isn't there, but the on-base skills are there. He has nine homers and like 25 stolen bases, just a really dynamic player. And Eric Kennedy hasn't really found himself, uh, but he brings some more speed to the lineup and and plenty of experience. And they play high-end defense. They're fielding 980. Trey Faltini is a joy to watch at shortstop. Uh, They run around in the outfield really well. They, I mean, they just play really clean, consistent baseball. I don't know what this team's weakness is, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I guess thinking about it more, um, you know, I guess I, I I might take Texas here because I I, I do like how pitching wise they really do. They they don't have the problem Vanderbilt has where it feels like there's at least one game every weekend where they're scrambling, and Pete Hansen being what he's been has really changed that equation there. And I mean that's. The Pete Hansen story is an incredible one because it's it's my understanding, and because I don't have Longhorn Network and various other reasons, I haven't seen, frankly, have not seen a lot of Texas this year. But like from what I understand, like the stuff is still not what it was. But he's just got to figure it out. He's just kind of figure out how to make it work, um, which is pretty cool. Like, and I think that probably bodes well, you know, for his ability to succeed at the next level. And I think evaluators probably like that because you have to trust that. I don't you have to do anything, but if they have trust that the stuff bounces back a little bit over time, then um, you have to like the ability that he has to just kind of work with what he's got. So they don't have that vulnerability that Vanderbilt has very rarely when I've written up Texas in the weekends, you know, even when the weekends have been kind of mad, like they don't, they don't really have those games where it's like, Whoa, this one really got away from them. Uh, Vanderbilt has had those games and they've won some um, because they're good, but they, they haven't always. Texas doesn't really have those. I think the, the offense thing is a toss-up, but the fact that we're calling it a toss-up shows you how far the Texas offense has come because there was a point earlier this season, right around the time that Texas was 
you know, um, playing, I guess, South Carolina, you know, and then they won that series, but we were kind of like, remember the offense is still kind of a step behind. It feels like it has come a long way in that regard. You mentioned some of the guys that come on and, you know, Trey Faltini talked about the defense. He also offensively seems to have taken a step forward and he's got a little bit of a um, little bit of pop in his bat, you know, and um, he's one of a couple of players, including Antico, who've been actually better in big 12 play than they have been overall. So that kind of suggests that they are coming on a little bit. So Again, I, you know, I don't know which way I'd go in terms of which offense I would take, but, you know, I would definitely have taken Vanderbilt a month ago, certainly six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, it wouldn't have even been a question. So that shows you the strides they've made. And I think that puts them in a, in a solid position where I don't, I, I just don't think they're going to be a team that gets buried because they can't score any runs. It's not a team that's probably going to do eight or nine runs a game against good pitching, but they're no longer going to be hamstrung by the offense. And I think that's actually a pretty big improvement over where they have been. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. And the, the development that Texas has made, the strides they've made this season has been remarkable. Like let's throw out opening weekend and just call it an aberration uh, results wise, but they still, they didn't play well in Arlington for whatever the reason was. And there are probably many reasons that went into that, but they didn't play well up there. And, you know, the, they took that, they didn't let it, uh, you know, really get to them that like, that could have been a point where things really fell apart. Like, Oh, we came into this year with a whole lot of expectation and like, we just went out and got beat three times on a massive stage. Uh, like that could have gone sideways for a different team, but this team took it as like, okay, what do we have to do to get there? That wasn't us. We have to play better. Now, how do we do that? And then they, they've, gone out and they've done that and over the last three months it's it's just been really impressive to to see the growth Zach Zubia said on Saturday that he thinks that they still have more to grow I don't know how much I agree with that but like I'll take his word for it and say like if that's true like that is that is pretty scary that to think that there might be another gear to find uh because the one that they're operating at right now is uh is rather impressive and and I I this team's going to play for a long time this June, you know, and I know Texas fit like Texas is not where they were, you know, 20 years ago, but the expectations for Texas fans probably, they, they've never gone away. Like they want to go out and win national titles. Like winning the big 12 is an important thing and a, and a good accomplishment, but their goals, I mean, this is only USC has more national titles than Texas. So like that is, the expectation here on some level, this is a team that, you know, I, I don't think they're beating Arkansas. Like I still think the way I think about Arkansas, but I, I do think this is a team that has the potential to go out and, and really do something special this June. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's move on to those hogs who won the, their first sec title since 2004 this weekend. Uh, but before we get to that, check this out. All right, Joe, like I mentioned, Arkansas this weekend won their first SEC regular season title since 2004. Uh, they've actually never won the SEC tournament title, so that's what they're playing for this weekend or this week in Hoover. I was a little surprised to see that, but they have not won the regular season since 2004. They needed to, to go out and you know beat Florida to do it this weekend or get some help from South Carolina against Tennessee. They took care of it all on their own, though. They swept the Gators 
they really left no doubt on on Thursday night. They played a good game. It was a pretty typical Arkansas game in which, you know, Wicklander was good. They played a tight game for a while, and then they went to work against the other team's bullpen, and Kevin Copps, uh, you know, threw a bunch of scoreless innings, and they, they come away with a win. Uh, Friday was much more dramatic. They were down for much of that game until uh, Robert Moore tied the game with the homer in the eighth. They walk off, uh, eventually walk off with the win, four to three, and that was the win that, that clinched the title. Couldn't have happened in a you know better way for them. Really, it was a pretty cool scene there at Baumwalker. And then on uh, on Saturday, uh, they they just came out and and uh, you know finished it off despite throwing a, a bullpen game. So they uh, it was it was a really really good weekend for the Hogs. Just another reminder of of how good this team uh, this team is, and and now they are their SEC champs. Yeah, boy, if you um. You know, if you believe in the the clutch gene and uh, having players being clutch or not, and I don't know where I am on that, like I've checked out of that debate in baseball um, discourse, but um, Robert Moore has it if you believe that kind of thing exists. Uh, that guy is just an incredible hitter in those types of clutch situations. There was a period earlier this season where it felt like he bailed Arkansas out at every turn. Um, this seems like a million years ago. Remember when Arkansas did this weird thing where they would struggle with the out-of-conference opponents every Friday? Um, you do. That was such a weird time. What a time to be alive. Um, so they're no longer – apparently all they needed to do is get into SEC play to not really struggle. Um, oh, they did have – didn't they have like a blowout loss to Alabama on a Friday? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. it was for the first month of the season. Uh, yeah. they, they were struggling on Fridays and um, – you know, then they found Wicklander could be their Friday starter, and that helped. But, like, yeah, it was also just, like, they weren't hitting Friday pitchers all that well, and that's kind of been corrected. Yeah, and in some cases, like, okay, you know, Simo, Dylan Dodd, like, up to 97, 98 miles an hour, okay, like, that's that's a guy. But, like, I, that wasn't the case in all of them, I assume. Anyway, long story short, that's not a thing. Um, but Robert Moore, incredibly clutch. Um, and I think that was interesting what we saw between Florida and Arkansas this weekend because in, in some ways – like Arkansas and Florida have had some of the same problems this year to the extent Arkansas has had any problems where you just don't know weekend to weekend, like some weekends, Tommy Mace is really good for Florida. Some weekends he's really not. Some weekends Frank Wallamon is really good. Some weekends he's not. Arkansas has had that same problem. Wicklander has, has gone to another level. He's been really consistent, but when you talk about Paulette and Bolden or pick another name off the roster of guys that they've tried to start, um, they've had that same problem too. The difference is, Florida also can't always depend on what it's going to get bullpen-wise, whereas Arkansas has always found a way to make it work. And we've talked about how their bullpen is also not impenetrable, but I think that's part of what makes them so good is that they're able to do what they need in the given situation. And so I think that's just an interesting difference between these two teams that they have some of the same limitations. Arkansas is just able to overcome them at every turn in a number of different ways. And Florida has been less certain about their ability to overcome them at any turn, you know, sometimes the offense lets them down. Sometimes it's the bullpen. Um, so they, they really feel like a team that has been hamstrung by the inconsistent starting pitching in a way that Arkansas just has not been. I would say two reasons why Arkansas does not get stuck in that same trap. One, I've said this a million times, elite defense and Florida 
I typically talk about in the same way. They just haven't been as good defensively as uh, they usually usually are. And that reared its head again on Friday night um, in in the you know when they in, in the final inning. Casey Opitz hits a double into uh, left center field. Judd Fabian comes over to field it, gets by Fabian, I think because he's trying to move too fast, and Opitz ends up on third base. And at that point, you know, I mean, the games, Arkansas at that point is, is going to feel really great about their chances to, to go out and finish. And then the, the second reason I would say is Kevin Cops. Um, like he is such a difference maker. As good as you know, Jack Leftwich has been in the in the bullpen. Um, he's not Kevin Copps. Nobody is, except for maybe Landon Sims. And you know, just having the ability to go to Cops and having Cops come out and throw three innings all the time, do whatever he needs to do. I mean, other teams don't have that, and. As long as he's doing that, you know, some of the the other inconsistencies or, you know, concerns about the bullpen, you know, they kind of fade away because, you know, like if you just get this to cops and keep it close, like it'll be okay. Yeah, he really is. He really does kind of change that. You know, it reminds me a little bit of um, pro baseball about, and I'm not saying this revelatory, but it reminds me a little bit of in, in pro baseball when the, the era of dominant closers came in and like as a child of the nineties, like I remember this is when Mariano Rivera was coming up and Trevor Hoffman was coming up and I was an Astros fan growing up. So they had Billy Wagner. There was this kind of era of these dominant closers. And then there was like the cottage industry of like, okay, now who's the eighth inning guy. And so you had guys like, again, an Astros example, Octavio Dotel, who was unhittable for a couple of years but it, it changes the math in, in games when it's like, okay, we really only have to account for seven innings. And then it was six innings. And then, it, and with Kevin cops that, I mean, that is such a weapon essentially where it's like, okay, we just need to like cobble together 18 outs. And once we can do that, like we can put this baby to bed and maybe we're leading, maybe we're tied. So, you know, if it, you know, it, they obviously have to use context here, but the fact that they can turn to him, you know, basically any moment, really starting like the fifth inning if they really needed to. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see that in the postseason. Like anytime after that point, he, you're on Kevin Cobb's watch essentially when he could come in. And it's just such a, it's been said a million times a million different ways. And uh, I read something I would recommend that um, uh, I refer to him as Hutch. I forget his, his first name, but writes for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He did a, a piece on Kevin Cobb's, like basically the story from beginning to end, because it's easy to forget now, but like, Kevin Cops had had injury problems. Like he's in a sixth year for a reason. Like he redshirted injury problems last year was just not good. Even on in the summer, I saw him in the summer in the coastal plain league. And I tell you, I saw him and was like, eh, okay. Like I, I was not, I mean, his ERA was over five in the coastal plain league. Like it was not kind of stuff that was blowing me away. So um, he is really kind of just an incredible story. And it's been talked about at this point, understandably quite a bit, but it bears repeating that, what he's doing is not just like impressive from the standpoint of his numbers are out of this world. It's also impressive because there was very, very little indication that this was in the tank coming into the season. Yeah, no doubt about that. He uh, it's, it's a huge part of, of why Arkansas is where they are to today. Um, one thing coming out of this is that Pan Paulette did leave Friday's game injured with the trainer. 
I uh, have not seen an update on that definitively. Other things were happening on Friday night, I think. Um, so we'll we'll be monitoring that uh, going going forward. Arkansas really could use him. He he hasn't been um, you know the lockdown pitcher that he was the first few weeks of the season necessarily, but he has been one of their better arms and one that you know gives them as much length as as anyone other than Wicklander really. So. Uh, Losing him would be for any any amount of time, I guess, at this point in the season, except for this week, uh, would be significant. But we'll uh, we'll we'll certainly monitor that going forward. Uh, elsewhere in the SEC, uh, Tennessee won its first division title since 1997. Uh, so shouts to the Falls for Falls for getting that done. Now it does come in part because Vanderbilt played one fewer game. Uh, games than uh, than the rest of them because they had a rain out on Sunday against Alabama. Uh, I've never dug into why they even got in a situation where a rain out is possible. Usually SEC teams are pretty aware of that possibility and um, usually play double headers earlier in the weekend. But anyway, Vanderbilt didn't and they uh, they wind up with one less game than Tennessee. And so despite beating Tennessee head to head in Knoxville, they, uh, they do not win the division. Uh, the fact that it came this way should not take anything away from Tennessee. They have had an incredible season to this point. And, um, you know, they are, they're, they're a really good team and they'll go into to Hoover feeling pretty good about themselves having beaten South Carolina. Uh, the bubble teams in the sec coming into the weekend, Alabama, Georgia, LSU, LSU got its series win at AM. The other two did not. Uh, Alabama got swept by Mississippi State and is now in dire straits going to Hoover. And uh, Georgia did get a win against Ole Miss, but probably, I mean, like they're not in the field right now. I don't think that they'll probably need a little bit more, uh, although I have not started making this week's projected projections yet. So uh, that's kind of the other things that stood out to me in the SEC, Joe, did, did anything stand out to, to you? Obviously, we will also get to the situation at AM in which Rob Childress is no longer the head coach uh, a little bit later. But, but on the field, Joe, did anything else uh, stand out to you? Well, one thing to project forward with what you're talking about is that LSU and Georgia play in Hoover uh, on Tuesday. So, I mean, I you know, some of it will depend on what they do after that, but that does feel, I mean, the loser is out. I would the say. loser is yes, exactly. The loser is done. Uh, the winner, you know, might want to win another game because then you're one and two, if you don't win another game. So like, it's not a guarantee necessarily, but uh, winning that game certainly would keep you from being eliminated. So those, those are always fun in these major conference tournaments when you, when you um, get those kind of plans early, because sometimes the early days, as you know, sometimes the, the first day in particular of these, the big conference tournaments can kind of be a little bit of a, a slog and kind of uninteresting because you're, you're like, what are we looking at here? Really? Um, uh, watching it on TV must be really tough. I'm going to experience that this year, I guess. But like when I'm there, it's like, Oh, I'm here. And like, I'm seeing all these people and it's exciting. And then you remember like uh, the stuff on the field. It's like, well, I mean like, yeah, so many seasons are ending here, like in each of these four games in Hoover. Cause it's the, the first day is single elimination, but it's also, like I, I usually spend a lot of that day like working on like project kind of stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a different deal, but that, that LSU Georgia game is uh, it's interesting for a much different reason 
Yeah, and it is also thankfully not in like the 9 p.m. time slot. So I cannot you know, understand how LSU avoided that. That's that is like the LSU time slot. Yeah, it's a 5:30 scheduled start. That'll probably be not 5:30, but it also means that won't be 11 o'clock. So um, that's a, a must. I think a must watch there um, if you're if you're an SEC fan. One other quick both teams yet. 13 and 17. Yes. So firmly in the mix here. But yeah, the loser probably probably not getting it done there. I would guess. Yeah, I would, I would, I would guess that as well. Um, one other scattershot note is that I, I don't know if it's it's going to be hosting. It probably needs some things to happen around it. But I actually was a little bit heartened by what I saw from South Carolina again last weekend. They lost that series to Tennessee. Tennessee's just a better team this year. There's really no shame in that. But the offense does appear to be coming around. It was another weekend where Wes Clark did some things and Brady Allen did some things. Uh, Andrew Eister did some things. Uh, Brett. Clearly, Brett Carey in the rotation is not just a fluke thing where he had a good weekend against a Kentucky team that's just a you know fairly average team. He had a really good start in the second game of that series. So, you know, I, I wrote in the recap that they lost that series, but I don't think it's necessarily something they should feel all that bad about. I think this is a, a team that's definitely more dangerous than they looked four or five weeks ago because they they and it's not just because they've started you know, having a little more success and wins and losses, all of that is also true. It's also just that it does feel like they've, they found some things, found another gear, guys who are slumping are getting back to form. And I think that makes them a lot more dangerous moving forward. Yeah. It's uh, it's been interesting to see how the team has responded to Brett Carey as a starter. Uh, I mean, he, he's been so good as a, as a reliever and just to see him walk into the rotation and continue that, that level of, uh, of performance has been very impressive and, and it, it, it has definitely seemed to to give them a lift, and now we'll see we'll see what they can do. I, you know, Hoover has not been a place where South Carolina has found a whole lot of success over the years. Ray Tanner was clearly not putting a whole lot of emphasis on on the tournament, um, and you know, since then they just haven't had those kinds of teams. So I'll be interested to see what they have going this week as they try and play their way into a host. Uh, but we'll. Uh, We'll definitely be be watching the Gamecocks moving forward. I think that is uh, that is a good observation. Uh, all right, Joe, let's head out west, where the Pac-12 title was surprisingly decided this weekend. Arizona was playing Oregon State. Stanford was playing Oregon. Uh, Arizona ultimately goes out and wins the series in Corvallis. Got it done late on Sunday. Uh, needed needed to come back. They score five runs in the final two innings to uh, to to beat the Beavs and, and win the series. They while that was happening, Stanford and Oregon were locked in an extra innings rubber game, uh, and ultimately Stanford prevailed. And with that, that was enough to clinch the title for Arizona by virtue of their series win against Oregon earlier this year. Arizona is done with Pac-12 play. They finish at 21 and nine. Oregon still has uh, a weekend left. They are uh, they're 18 and nine, but again because they because uh, they lost the head-to-head series, they they are not going to be the Pac-12 champions. And then Stanford is missing a whole weekend because of some COVID stuff. They're still right there, but. Uh, not also not able to uh, to catch the Wildcats despite their series win against Arizona. Anyway, Arizona now Pac-12 champions for the first time since 2012. 
they are back to the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2017, which is wild. Uh, they were bubble out in both 18 and 19. And then, of course, last year didn't happen. Uh, so it's been a little while that we've even seen Arizona in the tournament, which is a, a crazy, crazy thing. But they uh, they leave no room to, for the committee to, to leave them out this year. They, they've been outstanding all season long. And then uh, they go out and, uh, and wrap up a Pac-12 title. Uh, which Arizona doesn't have a ton of historically. Like you see all the national titles in this program's history, but it's not like they've run the Pac-12 really. Uh, but they uh, they go out and they get it done this uh, this year. Yeah, what, what I've always said about Arizona, like just as an aside, it, Arizona has one of the strangest um, program histories of any team that's kind of considered a power in college baseball. But that's part of the point I would make is that if you were to say to someone, not you or me or someone who does this professionally, but if someone who follows closely college baseball, like, I don't know, myself as a fan 10 years ago, and you would say, who are the powers in college baseball? And you would, like, historically, and you'd rattle off probably USC and Arizona State and Texas and uh, Miami, and those would be pretty easy. And if you're really into it, you could say, well, Wichita State for a while, you know. Like, Arizona probably wouldn't come up, but, like, the numbers back it up, like in terms of like national success, like they've got as many national titles as, as really anybody not in that upper crust group. And um, so anyway, that's just quite the quick aside that they, they do have like this really weird, even right down to the fact that like, unlike some of these other powers, like they miss regionals sometimes, <laughs> like, and not just the last couple of years. Um, so like a fascinating little history, but obviously added to it over the weekend with a Pac-12 title. And like you and I have been evangelizing about Arizona all season. Um, but it, like it, it should be said again, like, this is a team that sure, like we know front and center what the flaws are. And like, we tend to not like just as a sports watching culture, we tend to not like, or believe in the teams where we know exactly what their flaws are. And Arizona's has been front and center all year, but like we talked about last week, the pitching has gotten better. You saw that again over the weekend, I think. And this offense is just so dang good. Like, especially when they're playing at home which they will be a couple of weeks. Um, they're just going to be really, really tough to beat. This is a team that, you know, Omaha is a whole different ball game, but like there's, there's really going to be nothing holding them back um, outside of it's baseball and things happen from this being a team that could play for a national title. And like the warts could pop up, you know, in Omaha, but there's nothing holding them back from that point. Um, this team is just really good. It's been, uh, consistent for the most part all year. Like they have a couple of series losses here and there, but it's, it's not some of the egregious stuff that we see other places and um, just have to give them a lot of credit for just an incredible season that I think even you and I like early in the year, as much as we've been pro Arizona this season, because we, I think we were the, the high, the high people on, on Arizona in the industry coming into the season. And even you and I kind of like waffled early when like, you know, they split four games at ball state, they went to the, and I, I like you get confused on which tournament was Frisco and which was Round Rock, but whatever tournament they were in, they kind of did looks, didn't look super great there. They had that game against Oklahoma where the team scored like 40 combined runs and it was like, oh boy, you know, um, I'm not sure what we have here. And then since that point, they've just been really consistent and went and won the Pac-12. So kudos to them. I would also say with Stanford, they're finally, you know, at the tougher part of the schedule now and they've handled it pretty well. The team that it looks like it is also going to be playing at home. Um, and this is a, you know, kind of an interesting team that I, you know, 
talking to Dave Esker early in the year, he was not surprised by this. Obviously, you know, I'm a little more surprised by this, but he's with the players every day. But I think even if he's not surprised by this, like with the exception of the pitching staff, which has some older guys, Jacob Palish, Brendan Beck, like this is still a pretty young team. Like I, I think this might be more of a 2022 team that just kind of has arrived in 2021 to host a regional, which uh, says great things about what their future is like in the immediate, uh, the next immediate couple of years. But um, this is a team that, that could do damage as well. I, I like Arizona a little bit more, but like I thought it was impressive that we saw Stanford go out and, and do what they did and, and really kind of, you know, answer some of the detractors that early in the campaign said, well, they're winning series, but who are they playing? And, and, and by the way, you and I weren't so much detractors, but you and I were asking those, those same questions about Stanford and, and they've really answered them well the last few weeks. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And, you know, I dropped them off the host line a week ago. I think that I mean, they're definitely back now, and, and I think they're pretty well locked in. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if the West Coast gets four hosts. Um, you know, right now, Gonzaga also probably looking pretty good. Uh, there are not enough teams for four West Coast hosts. So if they do, like, that's not going to, I mean, I know the committee doesn't care that much about regional stuff, but uh, they, uh, they they will have to be shipping a lot of teams out West if they go that route. Um, Oregon. Now, this is a team that I liked enough to put in my eight for Omaha a week ago. We talked on the pod about why I thought they were they were that kind of team. I don't think this weekend changes much about how I see them. I did drop them from eight for Omaha, however, because I think that they are now, like their, their shot at being a top eight seed is probably gone. Uh, their RPI has really backed up over the last week to the point where that they're not really in the mix to be in the top 10 and they're now not going to be Pac-12 champions. So it's a little hard to see them as, as a top eight seed. And I just find it hard to believe that a team that has so little postseason experience, like effectively none, um, will handle going on the road in a super regional. If that were to happen and like, that would likely be the case and they would likely be headed to a SEC or Big 12 venue because that's like what six of the top eight seeds are going to be probably. And so like, what is that going to look like for an Oregon team having to, to face that kind of kind of atmosphere? Uh, but I, I ultimately don't think that this team, uh, you know, th that they need to, we need to recalibrate just because they lost this series, this really tight series to Stanford. Uh, I, I think they still do all the things well that they, they did well. And, uh, you know, to your point, Joe, Stanford's just, uh, they're playing really well right now. They're just straight up a good team. Yeah, I was going to use a, when you talked about Oregon going to SEC or Big 12 venue for a, um, for a super regional, I was going to use like some sort of strained like duck out of water, like kind of metaphor, but ducks are fine out of water, like not permanently, you know, but like <laughs> they get along just like they can walk, like, you know, so I guess it wouldn't be, maybe that's actually a better metaphor though, because like, Ducks prefer the water, spend a lot of time in water. If they're out of water, like they're okay. They're just not as comfortable as they could be. So maybe actually it's the perfect metaphor. Um, because I think that's exactly what it would be. It would be kind of a strange, um, you know, just Oregon's one of those teams that and it's, it's different now. Like I'm not saying that it's the same program it's been and was under George Horton, but, you know, has been so closely tied to kind of the West Coast style of play and, and being a West Coast team that it almost seems like it would be jarring to see Oregon playing a game in an SEC venue it just does seem like that would be kind of a weird visual 
but um, you know, I, you know, I, I'm with you. I, I, I wouldn't sell my Oregon stock if I, if I had some, cause I, you know, I think there were still a lot of positive things and, you know, we talked about it on the, the last podcast and I, you know, I undersold um, certainly the Oregon pitching staff, you know, Robert Alstrom through another gym um, in the opener of the series. I don't know why that was so hard for me to get out in the opener of the series and Kafka has been really good. So it's, it is a better pitching staff than I was giving it credit for. And you set me straight a little bit last week, but I spent some time with it this weekend, kind of looking at it and then saw what Alstrom did and, and was impressed. So they certainly have the arms to, to get through a regional. That's not a concern. It's just a matter of, you know, like you said, how will they do, uh, I'm sorry, to get in through a super regional and get to Omaha. It's just a matter of where do they get sent? What's the matchup like? Because it's not a team that's so good they can overcome any matchup, but that's true of 99% of the teams that are going to be in that position. Yeah, I mean, they're likely headed to like a 9, 10, maybe an 11 seed at worst. Um, so like they're not going to get the top, top, like it's not like they're going to Fayetteville in all likelihood for, for a super. Uh, but, you know, the seven, six, seven, eight seeds, they're still going to be good. Um, and uh, they're, they're, it'll be interesting to see what, what Oregon looks like in the postseason. We just haven't seen it in so long and um, what that, uh, what, what that looks like. I, I, uh, I'll be interested to see how all, the, all these Pac-12 teams do in, in a regional competition, because with the exception of Oregon and Oregon State, we just haven't seen it. So <laughs> I just want to see them play some teams from outside the West Coast, like I think that a lot of these Pac-12 teams are pretty darn good this year. Uh, but I also, you know, it is somewhat notable that if you look around, um, the Big West is not having a very good year. Like all, all sorts of SoCal schools are not as good as they usually would be. And so the Pac-12 was able to build up a really nice non-conference resume but what did they actually build up that resume against? I, I, that's just going to be an open question until we see them on the field against some teams from elsewhere in the country, because we haven't been able to see that to this point. All right, Joe, speaking of uh, closed conferences, let's, let's talk big 10. Uh, this came, this was totally off the radar for me that Nebraska could, could clinch the the Big Ten this weekend. And I think this was like the absolutely only scenario where it could happen. Nebraska went to a pod in Bloomington, played Indiana and Ohio State, swept four games there. Meanwhile, Maryland went up to Ann Arbor and won a series against Michigan. And all of that meant that Nebraska on Sunday won the Big Big Ten title. There it is. Uh, the Huskers getting it done for just the second time since joining the conference uh, like eight years ago, whatever that was. Uh, and, you know, they do it really impressively all weekend. That Those are good teams, the, the Hoosiers and the Buckeyes, and Nebraska handled it just fine. They've won nine of their last ten. Uh, really since the, the Rutgers slip up when they, they got swept at home there in Lincoln, they have been red hot. Uh, Will Bolt said yesterday, like, it could have gone one of two ways after that. It could have been like, you know, we're playing all these tough teams. Uh, this just happened. Like, let's hit the panic button. Or it could have gone like, well, look, we almost won the first two games. We probably should have won those first two games against Rutgers. Like, the bullpen uh, lost of late. Uh, they were in position to win. And then how different would it have been? And so, like, just keep at it. You know, 
improve a little bit and, and you'll be fine. And that is the tack that, that the Huskers took. And it's uh, they've ridden, they've ridden that hot streak all the way now to, to a big 10 title. Yeah. It's funny how one of the great things that, that we have in this sport is we get these like kind of crazy one-off results. And, and because this is what we do for a job, like we, we have to react to it and we have to draw some conclusions, even when we understand inherently that you can't always do that. And so, you know, we, they get swept by Rutgers and, and just looked awful, you know, a couple of meltdowns in there. And it was like, well, maybe they, maybe they're not ready to be the, the top team in the big, uh, big 10. And so uh, there was no panic button pushing necessarily, but it was kind of like, Oh, maybe we should look somewhere else for the, the best team in this group. And that was also, by the way, around the time where the NCAA had announced they were doing the, the site, the host site uh, situation, the way they were going to do it. So there was some talk of like, well, they're probably going to give, throw a big 10 team or two in the mix, which I didn't, but in part because Nebraska lost that series at that moment, like if Nebraska handles that series and then continues to play like it has, like, I don't know, it's probably in that mix, but you know, just a poorly timed series sweep there, but that feels like now just a complete blip. And, you know, perhaps it's part of, you know, the process of, of getting to where they are. Maybe they don't do this if they hadn't had that, if they'd gotten away with playing poor baseball and won that series against Rutgers, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a different story, but this team is really dangerous. Like it's, it's a good offense. I saw a pretty decent amount of, of their weekend. The offense I think is, is pretty doggone good. Um, you know, they can beat you in a lot of different ways. There's some, there's some depth in the lineup is what stands out to me. Like they don't really have anybody unless you, I was going to say Jackson Hallmark, probably not even him, but they don't really have anybody who's probably on the short list of big 10 player of the year. Spencer um, Schwellenbach. Yeah, I guess Schwellenbach because of the two-way ability. Um, so I don't know. I, I tend to think like some. I also like, genuinely don't know who the Big Ten Player of the Year is. There's not okay. really been like Grant Richardson didn't step up and take it. Like I, I don't know. I don't really know where that one's headed. Yeah, if they're not averse to like a team that's not really in the title mix, like the best statistical season is probably Sean Gusenberg at Northwestern. But like again, that's Northwestern, and I, you know. Um, because I wrote a little bit about Justin Janis from Illinois in three strikes last week and was like looking at, you know, he very well could win the big 10 batting title and, but he's not going to be a, cause he doesn't a, a batting average is kind of what he has. And like, I, I kind of had that same thing where I looked around for candidates and like, you know, it was Gusenberg and then it was, um, you know, if I, to, to the point you're making, I can't even remember who else I came up with there, but it is. So it is going to be an interesting race. I guess Schwellenbach is in that. It's just hard guy hitting below 300, even though that's not batting average is not the be all end all. Like that's just kind of a weird number to look at for a guy that we're talking about in that regard. But anyway, pitching staff wise, you know, you and I, when we had Will Bolt on the podcast, you know, we probably didn't pose it to him this way, but we did have some questions about the pitching staff and they've been answered in the affirmative really well. I mean, Cade Povich didn't have his best start over the weekend, but he's really been a revelation for them. And, and Chance Roach did have his best start literally um last weekend against indiana complete game 10 strikeouts uh which were the most he'd had since he was at new mexico state um previous to coming to nebraska so um they have figured out the mound they they have done it um they have answered those those questions and so it's it's a well-rounded team i think that can can win a lot of different ways and i think that's just always going to to bode well for their ability to win on the road in regionals yeah i uh 
this is another team that doesn't have a ton of postseason experience, but they do have some. There are players here that were even a part of the 2017 Big Ten champions. Uh, not many. I think they have three of them, but they, uh, they're they there. And the, the this team is an older group. You know, Will Bolt said when he took the job that it wasn't a rebuild. You know, um, you the, the situation of, of him taking over from, from Darren Erstad was, was, it was just a unique thing. Like Darren Erstad was just ready to, to step down. It wasn't like they needed to move on from him necessarily. And, you know, so he will bolt inherits a, a pretty good situation where they just needed to, he said, add some depth to the star players around that they had. And they've done that. And, and they've built uh, a pretty good all around group that pitches well, they hit, they uh, they've just come on and, and they've, they've played really well. And this is a team that wasn't really seen as a big 10 title contender coming into the year. They, the, the big 10 doesn't do a true preseason coaches poll. They only release the top six teams from their coaches poll. Like I, I have no, it's whatever. Um, I, like a lot of people are really bad at the Big Ten over some like really big issues, and I just have like these really small gripes. Like, why can't you put out a real coaches poll? Anyway, um, the they were not in that top six released by the conference. I don't remember precisely where I picked them, but I know it wasn't very much higher than sixth. If it was even sixth, it was somewhere in that five to eight range, as I recall, and. They've they've come out and and they've they've shown that they are they are the best team in the Big Ten. They're ready for that, and it's uh, it's been impressive to see. This is year two of Will Bolt, uh, and you know it's uh, it's certainly going pretty well. And they're recruiting at a high level. I, I just think there's a lot to like, not only about this Nebraska team, but about the future uh, in in Lincoln. And um, you know, it's uh, obviously what what they're looking for is a return to to where they they were at. Uh, at their peak and, and you know they're still a long way to go to where where they were 20 years ago but they're they're definitely moving in the right direction and and this weekend was uh was a big step for that joe before we move on from the big 10 what do you got on maryland uh because this is a team that we have not talked about much at all but they are currently second in the big 10 uh they are in the tournament field as it stands right now and i would find it hard to believe that they would play their way out in the final weekend uh, they might be a two seed right now. And I, they have, you know, as, as hot as Nebraska has been, Maryland has been almost as hot and they've been playing a pretty tough schedule down the stretch as well. Yeah. A team that when I saw them earlier this season, just, they were just not, they were just not good. Like, you know, they, they go one in three against Michigan state to begin the season. They split four with Rutgers. And then we look at Rutgers and we're like, okay, that's, that's not as egregious as we thought it was, but still it's splitting four at home against, against Rutgers. And they've got, you know, basically they, they, they lost series and split their way into the month of April, essentially. And they have, have really, really turned it on. I'll, I'll say this much about Maryland. The offense, a little light feels like the offense is, is a little bit light. Although uh, by the way, one of the names I thought about for big 10 player of the year is Benjamin Cowles at Maryland, 17 home runs. And it's an offensive environment in College Park. I'll give you that. But, like, I've seen Benjamin Cowles play for a few years now. He did not strike me as a guy ready to hit 17 home runs. But here we are. But the, I think a part of the issue with um, Maryland's offense is that it, you know, it, it hasn't necessarily, you know, a guy like Maxwell Costas has had a nice year. But he's sitting on one home run 
like that's kind of weird there. Like that's not really what I would have expected. Randy Bednar is not, uh, been fully healthy all year. So he's missed some time. So he was a guy who was going to be part of that. Bobby's Marslack, similar deal. Like he's thought of as kind of one of the next guys in line there. So the offense has just kind of been, been spotty, uh, pitching wise though, they are not going to be a team you want to see. Um, the numbers in every case don't stand up to just how good this team is, but anytime they're going to roll in there with, you know, Sean Burke, um, and Jason Savakul and Nick Dean, and all these guys who are hard throwers and prospects and what have you, like they are definitely a team that's on the short list of teams that you just, you're not going to want to see pop up in your regional because you're pretty confident you can get them. But if that pitching staff has a really particularly good weekend, it's, it, there's really very little standing between it and being able to win a regional. Yeah. They uh, they've put together a really nice pitching staff there. Um, you know, you mentioned the starters, Ryan Ramsey and Sam Bellow in the bullpen have been a big part of this as well. And uh, I, I just think that uh, they're playing well at the right time. This is a team that I did think was a candidate, uh, a contender to, to win the Big Ten this year. And uh, early in the season, I was I, I thought like, like you, Joe, I mean, like, you know, you saw what happened against Rutgers and against Michigan State. And I was like, well, maybe I was wrong about about the Terps, but they've they've worked through it. Uh, and they've, uh, they've come out and, and they are, they are absolutely clicking right now and they'll go home and play Indiana in the final weekend and probably feel pretty good about, um, you know, winning that series. Indiana, uh, has all of a sudden really backed up here and, uh, like it was just a, a an abysmal weekend for the Hoosiers in Bloomington. So they're going to have to get right before they go to Maryland. Uh, they do have a game today against Ohio state. They're trying to avoid getting swept, uh, and they have lost uh, five in a row now, um, and six of seven. So that's uh, that's problematic. I don't know. Uh, have not analyzed the Big Ten bubble positions yet. Um, Indiana is fourth in the conference. They did win a series against Iowa, so I think they're still just they're they're, they're doing just fine. But uh, again, with four challenging games left on the, the schedule as we record this on, on Monday morning. It's not a position that the Hoosiers are, they want to be in right now with this, this slide, they got to find a way to, uh, to stop it. Ideally starting tonight against Ohio state, but, but certainly this weekend in college park against uh, again, a, a suddenly very hot, not, not, not even suddenly just a, a, a team that's been really good in the second half of the season in, uh, in Maryland. All right, um, moving on from the Big Ten, let's uh, go here to to the SWAC. Joe was talking about this at the top of the podcast. The SWAC tournament uh, probably wasn't on many people's radars uh, this week. It, it It's unfortunate that it always falls this way. Like, there are always other conferences deciding their regular season champions and Swax out here playing postseason baseball, and it's a little easy to fall under the rug, although it would be true if they were playing this week. Uh, there are so many conference tournaments, it's hard for any of them to stand out. Uh, but anyway, the SWAC was was doing their thing this, this week in Montgomery, Alabama. Jackson State came in 24-0. and They swept through the first few days of the tournament to advance to the championship game. The championship game in the SWAC is uh, is winner take all, single elimination. The, the way they do it in some conferences, other conferences continue to make it double elimination. 
But in the SWAC, it's single elimination. And that's important because Southern came through the loser's bracket to play Jackson State in the title game. And of course, by coming through the loser's bracket, they had lost a game. And you know, Jackson State had not. But that didn't matter on Sunday. It was to the winners go the spoils. Jackson State led most of the game. Uh, Southern kept it tight. They're down, though, 6-4 to four going into the ninth inning. They get the first two runners on, and then their three-hole hitter, O'Neal Burgos, comes up, and he cranks this, uh, this drive to left field that Jackson State left fielder makes a play on at the wall, crashes into the wall. But the part of the wall he crashes into is the bullpen gate. And as Joe said, clearly the bullpen gate was not latched properly because it opens. And, you know, so you have you have uh, Jatavius Melton, the Jackson State left fielder, tumbling to the ground. The ball is tumbling to the ground, uh, into the bullpen. Like, it looks like a home run. There's pandemonium. Nobody's quite sure what's going on. They go. They check the replay. It took a while. It takes a while, even if you watch the replays. You, I, I tweeted, you know, somebody uh, spliced together a good cut of all the replays, and I, I tweeted it. Uh, so you can check that out. The first, like the live look that ESPN was showing from the Senate, for, from just from the initial feed of the game, uh, it, it's very difficult to see what happened. Like somebody screenshotted it and makes it kind of look like the ball's in the in Melton's glove as he's crashing into the, the wall. Um, but there's a second angle that seems to pretty clearly indicate that he never had the ball and the ball was clearly over the wall bef- like as the bullpen gate is opening. And, and so I think the umpires made the right call. Um, you can watch it and see it for yourself, but I, I think the umpires did get it right. It was a, it was a complicated play, but I think they got it right. And Southern having taken the lead on that wild play, they went out, they, they finished the game. Uh, Enrique Oza comes in, pitches the ninth, save for the save and Southern wins its second straight SWAC tournament. They are headed back to regionals and, you know, this is a brutal loss for Jackson state, which again was, had not been beaten in a SWAC game all season. Uh, but their RPI is now North of 120. Uh, they're, they are not going to get an at large bid. And we can argue about whether that should be the case or, wouldn't it be cool if there was some sort of NIT so that their season didn't end like that? But that is uh, that is going to be the ending for, for Jackson State, as, as brutal as it is. Yeah, just a tough way. You know, Omar Johnson was a little bit hot after the they replayed the what turned out to be a home run and called it a home run. And, and I get why. Um, I'm just not sure. I mean, A, I think it's the right call. And then also, like, B, like, what, do you, what are we supposed to do? Like, we can't just replay that at bat. You know, like it happened, you know, it's just a weird thing that happened. And that's, I think maybe you could call it a ground rule double, like maybe. Yeah. Like if, if it was more inconclusive, cause I'm with you, there were certain replays, even in real time, there were certain replays that showed the ball flying over the wall. So that it was going to clear the wall regardless. And so, you know, if it had been more inconclusive, I think they could have gone double there and, you know, that still would have tied the game and who knows, but you could kind of see from the beginning, the Jackson state, it might be an op- a chance for Southern to get Jackson state yesterday. Jackson state brought back Anthony Becerra, their best starter who pitched Wednesday against Texas Southern. That's not uncommon, especially in these 
smaller conference tournaments where if you get to the final, you bring back Wednesday's starter and try to get something out of them. You know, it was his bullpen day, according to Omar Johnson. And, you know, so there were, you know, it's it's a pretty common thing you see. And he just didn't from the jump, just didn't have it. And so Jackson state was kind of on its heels a little bit early. They did come back um, and make it more of a game, but um, you know, Southern just, and actually I say that and they they were leading. I mean, they, they were right there. They were three outs away. And then to have this happen is just, just tough. It, it really is. And, and Southern earned it. Um, you know, they really took it to them. And, and there's still a lot of, you know, championship DNA on that team. It's an interesting story from their standpoint. I mean, the focus, even for me, has been on Jackson State not getting there because they were an undefeated champion. And I, I would have liked to have seen Jackson State style of play on the regional stage. And something I wrote about a few weeks ago. Uh, but this Southern team's an interesting story, too. Kerry Jackson, you know, leaves the program. Uh, turns it over to Chris Crenshaw, like it just just kind of a, an awkward time in the off season. And so this it was team November was, it was right around Thanksgiving. Carrick takes the job with the newly formed MLB Draft League as the president, and uh, Crenshaw, his his assistant, is promoted. Uh, interestingly, Crenshaw, uh, former Jackson State assistant. Yeah, there you go. So you know that's an interesting story in its own right. It gets overshadowed by the way the game ended. And also the fact that it's it's Jackson State taking a loss, but um, still a lot of championship DNA on the Southern roster, I, I presume, uh, without doing the side by side from the group that was there in 2019. So, um, yeah, just a, couldn't have asked for a better ending. This I had a lot of fun watching the SWAC tournament this week. Shout out to the SWAC, just just by the way, like in, in all seriousness, you know, it, it's not a tournament. They've had audio in the past, audio of their games. Um, now I assume that you know they moved their tournament this season to the, the stadium where the rocket city trash pandas play playing um, looked like a nice facility. So I assume that has something to do with it, but they did video this year on YouTube. And I kind of expected it to be, as you see in small conferences across the country, maybe like a one or two camera setup where it's going to be one camera operator, just following the ball. And like, it's not going to be a great experience, but Hey, it's video. It was actually pretty good production. Um, so I was very pleasantly surprised to see that. So I had a lot of fun, especially earlier in the week before, the big stuff started on the weekend. Um, had a good time watching uh, SWAC tournament this week, so um, that was that was kind of a nice little surprise to be able to watch so much of it on YouTube and enjoy that. And it was just the the absolutely perfect ending uh, to a conference tournament. Not so much for Jackson State, uh, but just in terms of being giving us the dramatics we're looking for to uh, crown a, re- a regional bid. There was one other bid handed out this weekend. It was in the MIAC. Their tournament also uh, ended rather dramatically. Uh, Norfolk State, which was hosting the thing, playing North Carolina Central in the championship game. NC Central, of course, on the chopping block to be eliminated at the end of the season. So they are playing like the ultimate elimination game there uh, in the they were going to need to beat Norfolk State twice uh, on championship Saturday because they had come through the losers bracket. Norfolk State had beat them in a winner's bracket game earlier. And. NC Central gave them all they could handle, goes to 11, 12 innings, and ultimately Norfolk State is able to walk it off. And as brutal as that is for NC Central, like their program is now gone. Um, you know, they go from playing for a bid to their, their what would have been the program's first bid to the NCAA tournament to not having a program anymore. Uh, it is the first time Norfolk State advances to regionals. So that's really cool. And also Norfolk State had gone 0 for 9 in championship game appearances 
I don't know the exact record because unlike in the SWAC, the MEAC does a true double elimination. And so uh, my guess is that Norfolk State had won on championship Saturday at some point, but just hadn't been able to, to win both games or whatever. Uh, but they, they had been in that position nine times and had not been able to win the MEAC tournament. So uh, quite the story uh, for the Spartans to, to get it done this year and in dramatic fashion on their home field. Yeah, it's kind of funny that, you know, the MEAC is similar to the SWAC and that the bigger story is the one that didn't happen, which would have been if NC Central gets its first ever regional bid in the, in the last year of its existence. And yet, so that doesn't happen. And yet the story that we actually have probably in most years would have been like the cool story to have happen, which is that Norfolk State is like always this bridesmaid, never a bride when it comes to the MEAC automatic bid. And part of that is I tweeted uh, over the weekend when, when you had tweeted that they won was that, you know, part of it is that they've, the, at least for the first half of that run, they kept running into Bethune-Cookman when it was operating at its full capacity. That has been less true lately. It's kind of been a mix of teams, but uh, Norfolk State is just like a program that keeps plugging away and, okay, sure, takes advantage of the fact that, you know, it, it teams in its neck of the woods and the MEAC, are the, it's the softer side of the MEAC, so they're, they're definitely taking advantage of some of that scheduling-wise, but um, but they, they just kind of kept plugging away and they're finally going to get the result or the reward uh, of all that work. And so that's a, that's a pretty cool story in its own right, but obviously it just gets overshadowed by the fact that everyone, I won't say everyone, but many were rooting for NC Central to kind of come through and, and win that auto bid there. Yeah, and I think it's okay in the, you know, right now to be kind of sad for NC Central and like sad to, to have lost out on, on that opportunity to see them play on the biggest stage. But in a week on Selection Monday, like I think we can, we'll have moved on and, and can be full on excited uh, for Norfolk State to to be making their their first appearance in the tournament because that is always cool when stuff like that happens for for a program uh, to break through like that and again for them to do it the way they did it Alessandra Womack with a, a walk off hit there and uh, doing it on their home field they're I mean the I tweeted video from um, you know somebody who was there and it 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 looked like an absolute scene in Norfolk so uh, that was that that's a really cool thing. Um, you know, for that that program and and those players specifically. Um, I guess one thing quick here to wrap up uh another storyline. LaSalle also uh on the chopping block at the end of the season. They needed one win this weekend to St. Joe's uh to qualify for the A10 tournament. LaSalle did not get it. So the Explorers program also is now done. Uh, they had a remarkable season, won a program record 32 games, but just fall fall one win shy of advancing to the A10 tournament and getting a chance to play for you know a a, a storybook ending of their own um, next week there. But uh, still, remarkable season for the Explorers. They just did so well in, in the face of. Uh, of everything, what they and, and NC Central did this year, uh, absolutely to be applauded. I know not the ending, not the story any of them wanted, but still re- remarkable what they did in, in the face of seeing their program uh, kicked to the curb by their university. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's a difference in, and let me be very, very clear up front that I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, and I, I understand both approaches. But it was I was at NC Central's last home series, and like after the series was over, you know, Jim Kerner you know, gets on the microphone and 
like his administration is there. And, you know, he talks about his baseball administrator being just a great friend and supporter of the program. And, you know, he just had all these thank yous and then they had a cookout afterwards. And it was like a very, a very like, oh, well, this is the end of the road and we're just going to make the best of it. LaSalle's reaction has been different <laughs> from that. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but I understand the anger. Like, I want to be very, again, I want to be very clear. Like, I understand the frustration. I understand the anger. I understand fighting for your program. And I'm also not saying that behind closed doors, NC Central didn't throw some four letter words around and say, what are you doing here? We're just getting started. Is there anything we can do? Um, but LaSalle has been very front facing with that. And they fought it tooth and nail. And you mentioned a couple weeks ago how they made kind of an, a final appeal to the administration. The administration said, we consider this matter closed. And that's probably the end of that. Um, but they have been a little more publicly uh, indignant about the situation that NC Central has. Just, just two different approaches to what's a, a tough situation all around. Yeah, uh, no, no good answers there. Both just I, I cannot even imagine going through what what those two programs have gone through for the last in LaSalle's case, like eight months now that happened at the end of September, uh, NC Central, it happened on the eve of the season. I don't know if that has changed how any of this is, has played out, but a lot of time has passed at LaSalle and uh, just a, a tough, a tough year for uh, for the Explorers. Um, all right, Joe, that was the stuff on the field I wanted to get to you this week. We had, though, a rather significant coaching change. Uh, Texas A&M announced on Sunday after their season ended on Saturday with uh, them the missing the SEC tournament. Uh, their season is over, and, and they announced on Sunday that Rob Childress is out after 16 seasons as head coach. Uh, his contract was up. And so the, you know, the, they didn't really have to go out of their way to fire him. They're just not renewing the deal. And I have been a little surprised by the reaction. Maybe I shouldn't be. And, and we can talk through some of that here, but, you know, because I'm reporting on this stuff and like, I, I am as dug in on the, the coaching market as, as I am you know, I knew that Rob Childress's contract was up. I've written that this season. And, you know, if you're going to go out and have a year in which you don't make the SEC tournament, even in a year where you don't have like you're in, in a contract year. I mean, I don't really know what's surprising about that move then. And so, like, I think probably fans in College Station were not surprised. but around college baseball, a lot of people seem pretty surprised. And I get that Rob Childress, you know, took A&M to 13 straight regionals. Uh, they want, they went to two college world series. They won an SEC tournament. They won two big 12 tournaments. They've done an awful lot. He has won an awful lot of games. He's the third winningest coach in Texas A&M history. Uh, at most schools, all of that would have merited him a contract extension years ago, but it didn't at A&M. And so now having had this happen, you know, it would have been very surprising for the other decision to have been made. So I don't know what, uh, what all of that, that says. I mean, this is also a situation where Ross Bjork, um, the Texas A&M athletic director, he's been there for two years now. He, he got to college station, uh, in the summer of 2019 and ha he has not had an opportunity to make a significant coaching hire, uh, in part because of the pandemic, uh, but also because he inherited 
uh, football coach with a 10 year, $75 million contract. Um, a basketball coach had been hired just before he got there. And it was like a, from what we know, understand from basketball, like Joe and I are not experts, but it was a, a really good hire that was done. Uh, the women's side, you know, the, the softball and the women's basketball coaches at AM have both been there a really long time and have been there, been very successful. So this is a chance for Ross Bjork to put his stamp on it. And, and I think that that also can't be ignored in, uh, in the calculus here where, where this, this move is made, but Joe, you're probably a little more plugged into Aggieland than I am. Uh, I mean, it, it sure seemed like AM fans were ready for this change to be made, even if people around the country are maybe looking at it and saying, really, you're, you're getting rid of that guy that, that took you to 13 straight regionals. He has one bad season and he's out. Yeah, they, that is exactly right. Uh, they, by and large, they, there are always factions. Um, I don't doubt that he has his support uh, in some circles there. And what everyone can agree on is that he was, you know, everybody uh, enjoys Rob Childers, the person and thinks he's represented the, the school and the, and the program in a, in an honorable way. So there's, there's also that nobody's willing to really be, and, and nor should they be kind of nasty about it, but it's one of those deals where they, I mean, they were ready for a change and two things can be true. Uh, he has done a lot of good in the program. You know, uh, they'd missed regionals four out of six years when he got there and uh, previous coach, Mark Johnson, legend in his own right at AM, and and it had kind of been a similar situation where it just kind of started to dry up a little bit. And so he comes in and has one rebuilding year and then boom, they're right there in super regionals. Again, he takes them to the sec. They're competitive in the sec. Are they Arkansas or LSU? No, but they're obviously coming from that starting point, but they were competitive right away. There was some thought that, well, is, you know, AM going to get in this, you know, tougher neighborhood and then take a step back and, and not really, you know, they, they really competed extremely well. And at the same time, you can look at it and say the results clearly had started to wane. Um, they missed not just regionals, but SEC tournament this year, but there had been near misses in regionals in the past. They had that streak of 13 straight, but there were a couple of times where it was a little bit, you know, it had been a while since Texas A&M was just clearly, you know, um, you clearly in the field, a host team, like that kind of thing. It had been a few years since they'd been that. I think they host they hosted in 16 when they won the SEC tournament. They did not in 17, though they hosted a super regional and they get through to Omaha. But that that year was not as good as 16 was, even uh, despite the fact that they, they got to Omaha that year. They beat Davidson in a super. And um, as I recall, they went to Houston and won the uh, won the UH regional. But it was it was clearly not as good as the 16 team, like in terms of performance. The results yeah. were better, but the performance was was not as good. Yeah, and I, I think um, one of the other things that plays into this is he's done such a good job of bringing along pitchers. AM always has like a dude, you know, most recently Asa Lacey last year, and even Christian Roa to a certain degree. And their pitching had, I mean, you know, Bryce Miller is a good arm, like Childress is a good arm. Uh, so, like, uh, no relation, Childress. Jonathan uh, Childress. Jonathan yeah, no Childress, relation. thank you. I wasn't confident in what the first name was. <laughs> um, I started to say Jonathan. That was my guess. But then I, I always get him and Jonathan Cannon confused. Um, anyway, so um, I think there was also a feeling that, like, we have all this pitching, and yet, like, what does it add up to in terms of results? Like, no one argues that they've had some of the best pitching staffs in the SEC, which means by extension in the country in his tenure often, and it just hasn't amounted to what they want. I think it's less about, and I think this is, I think this is true. It's less about the lack of college world series appearances, although that's part of it. It's that 
they just haven't played well once they've gotten there. They've looked out of place when they've gotten there in the past. And I think that stings A&M fans as well. So the other thing I think I'll say is that it's really easy to stand up for another program's coach when your program hasn't been going through some of those same, same things. Um, and so I don't think that some of them I, I think would, but I think a good portion of the people who are out here saying that A&M should be uh, ashamed of themselves with the way they treated Rob Childress would not extend the same grace if whatever the, you know, if, if, if a Rob Childress type of resume was sitting there for their head coach, I, they would not have the same level of understanding, but I think, I think part of that also comes from the fact that even though A&M has had a lot of success, it is not one of the elite teams in the SEC. There's an assumption, I think, especially internally uh, in College Station that it should be. And money is clearly not a problem there. Resources, you know, facilities, that kind of stuff is uh, local talent is not a problem there. And so I think if you're a, a program who is an elite one in the SEC, you go, well, what do they expect? Like they're A&M, they're not Arkansas, they're not LSU, they're not Mississippi State. Like this is the way that works uh, there. Like they're, they're a good team that's not a great team in the SEC. And A&M is sitting there saying, but we should be a great team in the SEC. So I think you've got a little bit of like uneven expectations for what A&M is in the big picture. And I think that's part of some of where that comes from. They have had, like, it's not just recent not having success in Omaha. This is a program that has never had success in Omaha. And I have no clue why that is really. Uh, it's, it's confounding, um, to say the least. And, and I'm sure A&M fans feel more, much more strongly than that. But I mean, you look, you see what happens down the road in Austin, you see what Tadlock has been able to build at tech, see what Schlossnagel built at TCU. And I think it's very easy to wonder, I mean, look at it's what's happening in Stillwater, both now and, and historically. And I, it, it, it really is baffling that AM has never been able to to have that kind of success and you know I, the, that's what they're aiming for and you know they're they're gonna make a run at it here and and, and we'll see they're they're definitely going to try and hit a home run because the thing is you don't get rid of a coach like Rob Childress who is a consistent winner and has wanted a pretty high level without you know hopes of becoming a superpower. So we'll see where that goes. Um, you know, we run through some candidates over on the website. Uh, they're swinging for the fences, like names like Tim Tadlock, Jim Schlossnagel, Tony Vitello, Cliff Godwin, Eric Backich. They're, they're going to be thrown around a lot here. Um, and we'll see if they get them. Uh, you know, the going through these searches is not easy. Ask Mississippi state, ask Texas. Um, we've seen searches like these in recent years really get sideways. So we'll see whether AM is able to, to land one of these, these big fish or whether this search ends up getting sideways. But no matter what, I, I think it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to follow. And this is also likely to be the biggest job that opens this summer. There are going to be a lot of job openings. We have two years of, of coaching changes to make effectively this year since only a handful of jobs turned over last year. But you know, short of a surprise retirement, I think, um, you know, this is, this is probably the, the biggest job and, and maybe that also helps them to, to make this move. The idea that they can kind of control the market um, and maybe go after some of these, these bigger, bigger targets 
without any competition from, from other programs. So we'll definitely be tracking that. Um, unfortunate day for, uh, for the A&M program. I think ultimately though, that, that it came to this, uh, I, that, that staff, Rob Childress, Justin Seeley, Chad Kaye, they, they do a good job there. Uh, just not quite enough here at the end to, uh, to get another year. And like I said, it almost any other program around the country, they would have had contract extensions. Uh, but at AM, they're, uh, they're aiming a little higher. And Joe, I, I also think one point here worth making before, before we move on is that, you know, there's probably a lot of people wondering like, what would have happened if 2020 had been played? But I think at AM, that those questions are, are, are going to be felt significantly. I mean, you had Lacey, you had Deloach, you had Roa, um, you had the makings of what could have been a really good team. Now we weren't fully bought in on them last year. I think it's a little bit um, looking through rose colored glasses, looking back to say like, wow, if A&M could have played that season out, it really would have gone differently. Like we were not fully convinced yet, but if you look at just the pure talent on that team, it was, it was certainly a talented team. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's a team that, I mean, it's, it's a postseason team, I think at a bare minimum. And then once For you sure. get, once you get there, anything can happen. And I certainly think if nothing else, that would have put them in a position to where they might've had to make a tough decision at the end of last year with, because I think then you have a little more leverage, you know, as a coaching staff to be like, well, you know, we just kind of, we did this um, and now we're going into a last year of a contract. Whereas I think it was just tough given the timing that, um, you know, the, the administration was able to feel pretty good about letting him coach on the last year of his contract. I'm not sure if they would have felt quite so good about that if the team was coming off a very successful season and then kind of telegraphing that this was a make or break season. We've known from the beginning, this was kind of a make or break season for them, but it was also tough for there to be a reason to point to why it shouldn't be necessarily. Maybe they could have changed that narrative a little bit after last year and, and now we'll never know. Yeah. So there are already more than a half dozen uh, vacancies, changes uh, on the carousel. Alan Gum from Central Arkansas retired on Sunday. Uh, they've already got a replacement, though. But there, there are a half dozen vacancies right now around college baseball, and that number is only going to grow over the next week as, as more teams uh, finish their season and probably more than just next week. Um, so we're tracking all of that over at BaseballAmerica.com if you want to uh, – if you want to also follow the uh, the series coaching coaching change season, uh, it is we are we are heating up here uh, as as the season comes to a close. Of course, quickly on, uh, it uh, is a, on real quick on just a, just a word on Alan Gum real quick. Yeah. Uh, he's the guy I've said this before. Uh, happy trails, Alan Gum, a really good coach um, in a place that doesn't necessarily have all the things that you would think you'd need to to win. I mean, in terms of they're an outlier location wise in their conference and. Um, you know, they're, they're not in a state that's as flush with talent as most of the rest of the Southland Conference. And yet this year is the first year in a long, long time when Central Arkansas has not been right in the thick of the Southland race. And coaches in the Southland uh, are really in like universal agreement that he's probably the best coach in the league, best developer of talent in the league, um, gets the most out of the least in terms of coaches in the Southland Conference. So um, just a really good coach who always kind of operate under the radar that was like, your favorite coach's favorite coach kind of guy. Happy trails to Alan Gum, indeed. Um, there's a lot going on around the country this week. I know this was a longer podcast. Like it's, there, we had a lot to get to, and there's going to be a lot 
going on this week. Uh, conference tournaments start tomorrow, Tuesday, depending on when you're listening to this, it could be today. Um, and so we're going to be keeping up with everything over at baseballamerica.com. We'll have daily updates of the field of 64 throughout the weekend, starting on Wednesday, uh, leading up to selection Monday. Um, a lot of stuff to read over there. We will have a second podcast this week. Um, probably be a little bit different in format, probably be a little bit quicker uh, as we try and whip through whatever's going on, but there will certainly be things uh, for us, for us to get to plenty of, plenty of action as, as these conference tournaments get, get rolling around the country. Um, so make sure you're su- subscribed to the baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy, BA, with plenty of analysis uh, throughout the week on there as well. Uh, so, yeah, a lot a lot happening this week. Conference tournaments starting uh, with uh, the SEC, Big 12, ACC, Sunbelt, all starting on Tuesday, probably a couple others that I'm not remembering. And uh, they'll be rolling on throughout the, the weekend as, as we uh, get ever closer to the start of the NCAA tournament. So thank you all for listening to this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting it. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.